excited to have our uh, fifth, sixth, and seventh graders up here today. Um, we call this our cohort, and uh, there's a group of kids who have been together for two years. This is their, I think they're, well, yeah, two full years together, so glad you guys are here, um, part of the worship. And I thought you guys can help me, everyone could help me. I've, it's one of those things where I know I'm supposed to preach right now, but I was doing this Mad Lib, and I've just got to finish it before we get going, so... I'm going to need some different types of speech, and you guys help me out. Um, I'm going to need an adverb, so that's like a verb with an ing at the end, um, you know, running, swimming. L-Y, L-Y yeah, 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 thank you, thank you, uh, so, thank you very much, yeah, 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 so someone give me an adverb, huh, bigly, Okay, uh, let's see. From this side, I need a person's name, a real person's name. I said this side, I said this side. Ian. Ian, okay, just, just Ian. Can we say McFarlane or? Okay. Another person's name. Darth Vader. Yeah. What is a person? You were married to the philosopher. Um, a person's title. So, um, doctor. Food. Chocolate. A beverage. That? Okay, I'll go with that one. You guys are kind of boring. Uh, a weather event, tornado, hailing dogs, a texture, a color, oh, I just have to be able to repeat the word, I, um, noun, chicken, it pays to sit up front. I can hear you better. Uh, another noun. Guitar. Guitar. Hey, no cussing. I'm, I'm sorry. No, he's, <laughs> nothing. Um, movie title. Die Hard. Die Hard. Christmas. <laughs> A verb. Verb. To see. A place. Okay. Thanks. Now I can get on with my sermon. I'm serious. Is this for me? Okay. All right. On this second Sunday of Advent, what is our theme? Love. Okay. It is said that love is the queen of all virtues. The Apostle Paul writes about faith, hope, and love. He says, faith and hope are great, but in the end, only love will prevail. You won't need faith and hope when you're with Jesus face to face, but love you'll always have. It is the greatest. It's number one. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It sounds straightforward, right? Until you start to ask, well, what is love? And that's where your Mad Lib will come in, because the title of this Mad Lib was Love. Love is what makes life worth 
being bigly. The love shared between Ian and Darth Vader is a treat. <laughs> it's a treat to behold. And how I dearly love my own doctor. Why, with them I would share a bowl of my beloved chocolate or a swig of that Shirley Temple's I so adore. I love the way I am greeted by a tornado each morning and the way its soft chartreuse hues reflect off the chicken in our front yard. <laughs> There's so much love to experience every day, every day, whether it be through the conversation with a uh, guitar, watching your favorite movie uh, like Die Hard with you, or, or experiencing God's love together, uh, seeing in the beauty of Letter Street's Covenant Church. Love is all around us. Obviously, love has a wide range of uses in the English language. Uh, it seems nearly impossible to nail down a singular definition. It can, be ne- it can be used as a verb, a noun, an adjective. You can use it to describe your feelings towards someone dear in your life and then use it in the same sentence to describe your affinity for a particular candy or food. In terms of loving people, we in America love a good love story. We enjoy fantastic larger-than-life links that people go to express their love, the near-miss meeting on the Empire State Building. Was that Sleepless in Seattle, I think? There's, there's that one. We, um, we love the, the YouTube sensational uh, flash mob uh, engagement stories, right? It's just, oh, how fun. Uh, there's Wesley's relentless pursuit of true love in The Princess Bride. And the Lord of the Rings saga, we are moved by Arwen's choice to give up her immortality in order to be married in equality with Aragorn. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we see true love on display when Aslan, the great lion lord of Narnia, gives his life in order to rescue the traitor Edmund. Great acts of love make good stories. They're moving and motivating. They call us upward to live greatly and love greatly. But the reality is, is that, unless I don't know you too well, most of our lives aren't lived on an epic adventure on a regular basis. Most of life is lived in the everyday stuff. Advent is a season of preparation which invites us to consider how our daily decisions align with the reality of the coming Christ. Love is our theme today, and it seems to me that if we're going to explore it in a way that has impact on how we live most days, not just on special days, then we need a love story that's earthy and believable and hard and at the same time, true. It's the same story uh, that the Tegler family read earlier, but I'm just going to read it one more time through that lens. Would you join me if you're able to stand? (laughs) Sorry. Join me in doing what? Matthew 1, 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Pause there. I want to pray uh, a collect for the second Sunday of Advent. This was written by Thomas Cranmer. Blessed Lord, 
which thou hast caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us that we may be in such wise frame of mind to hear them, read them, mark them, learn them, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Read that passage twice in the span of, what, 20 minutes? It's one of those passages you and I have probably read countless times. I know I preached it several times. I've studied it word by word in Greek and English, but never until this year did I consider Matthew 1:18 and following to be a text about love. Let's face it, on the surface, it's not a very romantic text. It's not poetic. Joseph doesn't sacrifice his love or, or his life or sing a love song to Mary. In fact, Joseph doesn't even talk, which just as an aside is, what an what a oversight on Matthew's part. Didn't he know that thousands of years later we'd want to have Christmas pageants and all the kids that got Joseph wouldn't get any lines? I guess unless we just make them up, but. Silent Joseph isn't famous for what he says or how he looks. We aren't talking about him tonight because he was powerful or wealthy. We are talking about Joseph because God worked in his life and because of his love toward God and Mary, which helped change the course of history. Let's just dig into the text a little bit and unearth how Joseph exemplifies this love. The story begins, as most love stories do, with a relationship. Joseph is in a relationship with Mary. They are betrothed. Most important for us to wrap our heads around is that betrothal or betrothal was a legally binding relationship. In our culture, engagement is kind of like going steady with a ring on one hand and a plan in your head. There's implied commitment between engaged people, but at any point, an engagement in the United States could end, and there's no legal proceedings that have to take place. It's unfortunate, it's sad, it's heartbreaking most of the time, but that's it. When two people were betrothed in first century Israel, the woman's family would pledge a dowry or a large sum of money and or valuables to the groom's family. And this dowry was a gift for the woman, and it would ensure that if the husband died, she would have money and goods to live on. But if she in some way was to betray this husband, then he would receive the dowry and she would be cast out with nothing. Generally, betrothal would last one year, during which time the woman would live with her parents until the wedding celebration when the relationship was consummated. So Mary and Joseph are betrothed to one another. Who knows what their life was actually like? The Bible doesn't tell us, but we do know that Joseph was a carpenter, or as some scholars speculate, maybe a stonemason. Either way, he's a blue-collar guy. He and Mary probably talk about their future like kind of like modern-day engaged couples do to some degree. They make wedding plans. They get to know each other's family and friends. They did regular stuff because they were regular people. And in the midst of doing their regular life, from Joseph's per perspective, something exceptionally irregular happens. It comes to light that Mary, his betrothed virgin wife, is pregnant with child. 
There have been nearly 2,000 Advent seasons since the birth of Jesus, countless Advent sermons, myriad reflections on the birth narratives, but try for a moment, as I know you've heard this a million times, this passage, but try for a moment to forget all you know about the angel coming to Mary and informing her that she's pregnant by God with God. Suspend jumping to the end of the story if you can and try and feel Try and feel for a moment what Joseph might have felt. Betrayed. Shamed. Angry. Disappointed. Diminished as a man. Think of how oppressive it feels when you get bad news that alters your best laid plans especially when those plans involve the future of your family, the love of your life, all your hopes and your dreams. What is Moses, or Moses, what is Joseph going to do? First of all, let's just talk about his options as a first century Jewish man. In first century Israel, there were two forms of law in play. There was the Jewish law, which required divorce in the instance of adultery. And there was the Roman law, which also required divorce. In the dominant Greco-Roman view, if a woman committed adultery, it was the civic duty of her husband to divorce her. If he did not divorce his wife for infidelity, and, and that infidelity came to light, the husband could actually be charged in a court of law for not enforcing strict family codes meted out by Caesar Augustus himself. My point is that culturally, Joseph had no other options. He would simply have to divorce. It was what you did. Mary may have tried to explain herself, but again, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. At that time in history, the last prophet had spoken almost 400 years prior. Uh, For 400 years, God had not spoken directly through a prophet. And all of a sudden, God is speaking again, yay, and and through angels and all of the things he has to say, of all of the, the things he could say after nearly 400 years of silence, he's going to send the Savior of the world as a baby in the womb of Mary, this country girl that happens to be engaged to Joseph. How convenient for someone who ends up pregnant and not by the man she's betrothed to. So you can kind of see Joseph's perspective if we suspend all of the things we know about this passage. So Joseph does what he thinks he has to do. He is a righteous man is what the Bible says. And that means he's a right-related man. And Joseph seeks to obey the law of God from Deuteronomy 24. But there were two ways in that time period to go about a divorce. First, you could do what most people would have done, and that would have been to take Mary to court in the public court. And she and her family would be publicly humiliated. By taking Mary to court, Joseph would be free and clear to marry another woman. He would be clean of any of the shame that would have been brought upon him and his family and his synagogue and his community. And he would have totally gotten that dowry He would have gotten quite a bit of money. Mary would have had to endure a humiliating trial period, intended, intended, designed to bring shame on her. And once the virtue was out, she'd be brought to the city gate where all the decisions were made, and she would be stripped of her jewelry, 
and her hair would be let down, and her dress would be ripped so that her nakedness would be exposed. But that wouldn't be the end. Then mothers would get their daughters, and they would parade to the gate in a big loop. And the intent was, you don't want to be like her. Joseph's divorce in that manner would have been legally righteous. And for a moment, it may have even felt good. Mary had brought shame on Joseph, so he thought. And now Joseph could have his revenge. He could restore his honor and the honor of his family name. But Joseph does something different. Righteousness is not just right relatedness with God and his law. It's right relatedness with other people made in God's image. And so Joseph chooses to love. Sometimes the legal thing and the loving thing isn't the same thing. And as far as Joseph knew, he'd been wronged, he'd been shamed, he'd been broken by Mary's actions with another lover, but he would not make this an opportunity for revenge. After all, he'd loved Mary before this event, and he still loved her, and he would, he's going to show extraordinary love after the news of her pregnancy. The scripture says that Joseph, not wanting to disgrace Mary, planned to send her away quietly. What does that exactly mean? Joseph used his privilege as a man to protect Mary from extreme shaming of a public divorce, and he chose to send her away quietly, which probably means he was seeking a Hillelite any cause divorce, which was kind of this catch-all category. In fact, later on, when Jesus would preach about divorce, he would have, these guys would be in, uh, uh, trying to debate him about the two types of divorce, and is, is divorce okay? So that's a Hillelite, any cause divorce. It's the kind of divorce where you could get a divorce if your uh, wife burnt your food or, you know, crazy things like that. But Joseph is going to leverage this kind of loosey-goosey loophole Because all it would mean is that he would just go with Mary before a judge kind of privately and spare her all of that shame. Joseph would lose the dowry and he would live with some of that public shame. What is the right thing to do? This act of love by Joseph is not the sort of thing one writes ballads about. It's not the plot line to any great novel or play or opera that I'm aware of. And yet it is here that we find love at its truest and at its best. Love when it actually costs. Doing the loving thing when conditions aren't perfect. Choosing the less of two bad things in order to make a hard situation better for someone else. Let's face it, in the current climate of exposés on men behaving badly, Joseph is a refreshing encounter to how to be a man. Listen up, boys. True acts of love are carried out in the small things, in the -the behind-the-scenes activities, love in the trenches, in the regular day-to-day stuff. It's in the privilege not exercised for the sake of someone else. This Advent, I've been going through the daily devotional by Malcolm Geit called Waiting on the Word. It's an anthology of... uh, Advent-themed poems, and on December 5th, the poem of the day was called, or is called, Those Winter Sundays, and it's by a a poet named Robert Hayden, and Hayden lived in Detroit uh, between 1913 and 1980, and he grew up in a poor household in the African-American district of Detroit. 
His father was a manual laborer who worked hard six days a week for a pittance of pay. Sunday was his only day off. Hayden's parents had ongoing marital problems and the racial oppression they experienced coupled with their poverty created a household of tension. I can't, I can't imagine from what I've read about Robert Hayden's life that his home life was always just good. In fact, in fact it was also often tension-filled. But here's the poem that kind of spoke to me about love and the small things. I think we have some of the verse we're gonna put up. Sundays too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue vat cold. Then with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather made, banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house speaking indifferently to him who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? Love's austere and lonely offices. Hayden makes no romantic scene of the poverty and hardship of growing up in a poor African-American neighborhood in early 20th century Detroit. I imagine there's a fair share of, of discomfort and pain in that household. The line, fearing the chronic angers of the house, is more than a hint that Hayden often lived on pins and needles around his parents. And yet, in that extraordinary, or I'm sorry, in that ordinary, ordinary existence, not that of a movie or an epic or a romantic comedy, he recalls his father's small acts of love, acts of love that apparently went unnoticed and unappreciated by Hayden until he was much older. The fact that his father worked hard all week, that his hands ached, so must his body. How sweet a day of rest would have been for this man, and yet even on Sundays, his one day off, he woke early before the family to warm the house by lighting the fire. I love that line that by lighting the fire it would send the cold in the house splintering and breaking. He would warm that cold dead house and shine his son's shoes for church and all without thanks. Love's austere and lonely office. It is the small things, the things that often go unnoticed that are the acts of love that build relationships. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love carries the burdens of others. I mentioned some movies in the beginning of this message with great love stories in them. In The Princess Bride, we all know the love between Wesley and Princess Buttercup. But is it not the giant Fezzik whose loyalty, devotion, and friendship makes the story even possible? It's Fezzik who serves without reward, without romance, without agenda. It's Fezzik who literally carries Wesley when he's too weak and fights for Wesley when he's nearly paralyzed. Without Fezzik, there would be no reunification of Wesley and Buttercup in the first place. And in The Lord of the Rings, the love between Arwen and Aragorn is true and beautiful and tragic. And yet, the very world they live in is in the hands of very too small and apparently insignificant hobbits. Is it not the love and friendship shared between Frodo and Sam that sees them through sleepless nights and days without food, the weight of the world literally around their necks? 
It's their integrity and faithfulness and the little things and the gritty stuff of everyday life. One decision of good at a time, one day at a time. Sometimes we forget about the small things that Jesus did in love. We rightly focus on things like his sacrifice and the cross, the ultimate gift, his life for ours. We focus on his triumph over the grave and his ascension into heaven, the stuff of the spectacular. But before Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice, before he was exalted, he emptied himself. He became a human through childbirth to an unwed mother in a culture and time when that was very much shameful. Jesus was fully human. To save us, he made himself vulnerable to sickness and pain and hurt feelings and adolescence and probably pimples. Jesus loved in great ways, but also in small things. And talking to the wrong sorts of people because it was the right thing to do. And confronting corrupt powers, even when it would not serve to advance his career. True love is an act of the will to choose words and actions that advance the well-being of other people. For Joseph, love meant doing the least amount of harm to someone whom he felt betrayed him. For us, it might be holding our tongue, even when we know we're right, but winning the argument isn't important to the relationship. It might mean doing the little things without seeking recognition just because it's the right thing to do. You know, most of us, most of us probably won't be asked or be put in a situation where we have to take a bullet for someone or to run into speeding traffic only to push a small child out of the way or lose our life in some crazy heroic story. We're called to learn to love in the little things, in the regular things, to find ways to love the imperfect and sometimes in the evil environments we find ourselves in, the mundane relationships at the office, um, Relationships with the neighbors that kind of get on your nerves. They always leave their trash cans out for two extra days. Like, can you just pull that off? Come on, man. Maybe you should pull it off. Maybe I should pull it off. <laughs> with people who live in your home every day, right? Sometimes it would be easier to take a bullet, I think, sometimes, right? <laughs> the point of the story. Uh, The point of the story of Joseph and his love expressed in an imperfect situation is not to try and say, okay, church, that's what we're going to do. Pull them up. We're going to go be more loving. Go get them. Go get them, church. That is not the gospel. That's not, that would not be good news. <laughs> He's like, crap, I'm not good at this. The gospel is this. The gospel is that Joseph, who was a righteous man, a loving man, still needed a savior. And in his dream, God comes to him with good, good news. Good news for him personally and good news for the world. Look how gracious God is. He actually helps Joseph out here. He, he, he first gives him the news that Mary has become pregnant, not by infidelity, but by the Holy Spirit. And, and then he says the news that this child in her would be the savior of the world, that he would be the one everyone was waiting for. And his name would be Yeshua in Hebrew, which goes through this Greek filter, and then we get Jesus in, in English. There, ask me later. It, it literally means Yahweh saves. And this Savior, Jesus, would do what? Save the people, his people, from their sins. How we need saving. All this talk about sacrificial love and love in the little things, 
loving people in the mundane and in the small stuff, it all makes me painfully aware of how inadequate I am at loving. It brings my selfishness to the surface and exposes my greed and my lust for comfort, to be recognized, to be appreciated. And it may be humbling, and it's actually a little offensive too, but God's decision to share his love, to give his life because of our sin, has nothing to do with our performance or how good we are at all this love stuff. It has nothing to do with making sure your good deeds outweigh the bad ones. During Advent, we're invited to consider Jesus, to reflect not only on his ultimate sacrifice, but also on the everyday graces that break into the cold of our lives, like splintering and breaking fire, cast out the cold on a winter's morning. The way to grow in this love is to receive daily the forgiveness of Christ, the love of Christ, the presence of Christ. Love isn't something we possess. It's something we share, and that means we've got to get it from somewhere. And that source is the vine, Jesus himself. When we abide in Jesus, when we receive his love and his grace, then, then we'll be filled up to share it with other people. The good news of God's love come down at Christmas and the promise of Jesus' return is that we don't have to fear what a lot of us fear, and that is that our love will be wasted or that we won't be reciprocated for what we get. That fear is worldly and real and irrelevant in light of Christ. Because he's coming and he sees and there's reward and the acts of love that we give, they somehow are miraculously transformed and preserved in the new world. I'm so thankful for that. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray for a miracle, and that is you overcoming us with your love. I pray for my brothers and sisters and myself that you would expand our imagination for what your love looks like, for how deep and unending it is, how gracious you are. I pray for everyone this evening who feels they are unqualified to receive your love, Lord, that you would, you would change a mind and soften a heart. I pray that we would be people who are deep wells of living water, that we are so filled with your life and your goodness it can't help but to splash out in the things that we say and don't say, in the deeds that we, that we do for the benefit of others, in the deeds we abstain from that harm others. Bless the Lord.